I'd like to make this more of a story than a lecture. And this story begins, or it began, uh, with an email uh, that was on September 26, 2001. It was to me at the time, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, and the subject was neurosurgeon needed. If you ever get an email with that subject, don't open it. <laughs> and it was from rbransford at kajabi.net. Well, that raised questions because I had no idea who R. Bransford was, nor what Kajabi was. It turns out that R. Bransford was Dick Br Richard or Dick Bransford, a missionary general surgeon, a general surgeon, who had been in Kajabi uh, for many years. You see on this slide on the left, uh, the arrow points to that red dot, which is a village of about 5,000 on the side of the Great Rift Valley, um, an hour and a half from Nairobi, and on the right slide you see where Kenya is in reference to the equator. And so why would R. Bransford need a neurosurgeon? It was because this general surgeon had begun seeing children with substantial hydrocephalus and with spina bifida, and most general surgery programs do not teach their trainees how to take care of these disorders. Uh, he, he began seeing those children in 1997, and you see how his numbers of cases increased over the next few years. So that by the time he called me, 119 VP shunts for hydrocephalus and 61 <coughs> spina bifida closures per year. I mean, nobody in the United States is taking care of 61 children with spina bifida every year. So he figured with these numbers, uh, he, he wanted some more training. So I began going over most Januaries uh, for two to four weeks to see to, uh, to help teach him and help take care of the patients, and then he will co would continue their care after I left. And what happened after that first uh, trip is these numbers. So you see, uh, at 2009, uh, 646 children were tre he treated with shunts and 294 with spina bifida. I mean, these are extraordinary numbers. And uh, then the following year, September 1st, 2010, Susan, my wife, a pediatric nurse practitioner, moved to Kajabi to teach and to do pediatric nurse surgery. Now, why would we do that? Um, it's a personal uh, statement. We are um, Christians and felt that God was, wanted us to do that. I mean, it's basically that simple. So um, we thought about it for maybe a year and a half and then said, yeah, this is what we think we should do. So we did and moved there. Now, neurosurgery in Africa, a billion people in Africa, 1,200 neurosurgeons. You see 857 along the Mediterranean Rim in North Africa, 160 in the country of South Africa. But in Sub-Saharan Africa, 142. So about one for, per five million people. The U.S. has about one per 70,000. And pediatric neurosurgeons in Africa, 15 or 20. And in sub-Saharan Africa at the time, there were four. So there was obviously a need to teach pediatric neurosurgery. The Kajabi from the air uh, looks 
it looks nice, very lush and green. Uh, it's a village of 5,000 built uh, at an added altitude of 7,200 feet. Uh, it was established by missionaries more than 100 years ago because that height is too high for mosquitoes that carry malaria. Although with global warming, those mosquitoes are coming up. It has Kajabi Hospital, the Rift Valley Academy, a great uh, school, a nursing school, a seminary, and the ugliest hospital I've ever seen. 254-bed <laughs> general, uh, general Hospital, founded in 1915. It's under the control of the Africa Inland Church. Its mission, when established, was to provide good quality health care for poor people. And that's what it had been, its mission, until the last decade or so. So we went there with the, my hope was to teach pediatric neurosurgery fellows. The first fellow was uh, Ugandan, Humphrey Okechi, and Medtronic paid uh, his salary. I ran the fellowship very similar to the ones in the United States. Uh, he did about 750 cases. I gave him exams every four months based out of the textbook we use here. University of Nairobi said they would uh, validate the fellowship, but after three years they said, no, I don't think so. But he became, after a year uh, with me as a fellow, then he became uh, my colleague and uh, a consultant and was great to work with. The second uh, fellow, uh, I discontinued the fellowship after about six months. It was obvious that after a year he would not be able to do reasonable quality pediatric neurosurgery and I just couldn't, it didn't seem ethically right to finish him and and so that was discontinued and the third uh, fellow did finish in September of 2015 and is back in Ethiopia. Um, I wanted to teach neurosurgery residents from the University of Nairobi program. Uh, their faculty are not well trained nor good mentors. They're not interested in, most of them trained in uh, Kenya, and they're not particularly interested in teaching. The residency is six plus year long because it's based on the British system of advancement depending on your, the results of the score at the end of the year. So if you do your first year of residency, you take the exam and you fail it, well, you repeat the year. The residents pay their own way or get a sponsor to help them and they learn operating from either the chief resident or by watching the attending. The first time I went down to Nairobi to uh, do a, uh, it was a posterior fossa tumor case, four residents scrubbed with me. And I sort of took them through the operation as we would take a, a resident here through it. And at the end they said, that's amazing, nobody ever did that with us before. Something that simple. So they're not very well trained by our standards. They have moderate book knowledge. They lack an ability to evaluate a patient, to come up with a treatment plan. They have weak operative skills. Most of those things are not their fault. They're just not taught. And uh, 15 Kenya residents rotated with us in Kajabi for three month rotations. They worked hard. They're on call every two to three days. There's no 80-hour work week. Another thing to thank God for. And uh, 
I gave them exams at the start and the end of the rotation, and we taught them those things that you see listed there, basically how to be a neurosurgeon. Um, one of the last uh, groups that was working with me before we returned to the States, you see people from Kenya and Israel. The guy from Israel is now in neurosurgery residency in uh, New Mexico and then a great resident from Iowa who's doing a fellowship and uh, that's the fellow from Ethiopia. So very multinational. There were two Kenyan neurosurgery residents that came up and worked with me for a while in Kajabi that were outstanding. I mean, superstars that could make it in US residencies. And so I helped them get into the one really good neurosurgery training program in Africa, down in Cape Town. So they had to start all over. They're, they finished three years um, funding their own way through donations. They're, they are not wealthy. Um, and so Susan and I and a few other people uh, try to come up with 57000 a year to fund their residency for two more years. And if that happens, then they will return to Kajabi in January 19 and do this long term. That's the real bottom line hope. Um, helping us to teach neurosurgery residents. There were a lot of visiting uh, pediatric neurosurgeons from the United States. The ones with two stars, that means they've been there twice, and you see Sandy Lamb five times. She just came back this last uh, October. So visiting mentors and a lot of residents from the United States came because they could see and do more there, particularly in seeing children with um, bad hydrocephalus and with spina bifida than you would do in an entire residency here. The first year that I, full year that we were in Kajabi, I think there were about 297 or 300 babies with spina bifida. I mean, a large program in the United States would have 25 cases per year. I was in Madison four years before we went over there, and in the four years in Madison, eight cases. But we would do, in, on average, five cases a week of spina bifida. Another thing that I hoped to do was to teach, uh, to do some clinical research and to get some publications out of this. And so Susan, uh, my wife, established this database and you can see in the top left hand that number 4,431. That's how many patients she had in her database. And each patient had all of this demographic information, the procedures that, do, that were done, the CSF studies, and so a treasure trove of material that could be used for uh, analysis. And we have 15 publications so far and there will be one more to come out. Now what do you think was the main impediment to doing clinical research there. Do you think it was getting informed consents or HIPAA regulations or patient follow-up? Yeah, by far. Although the nurses went to mobile clinics at all of these places to provide follow-ups, I'd say half the patients never came back for follow-up. Either they couldn't afford it, or they lost the information about when they were to go, 
or just didn't think it was needed. So it was a, a really serious impediment to doing clinical research. In terms of equipment and supplies, as you look at this picture, I think everything in the picture, with the exception of that uh, canister that's in the back corner, was donated by people in the United States. The hospital made it very clear when we went, they, they debated whether or not they would allow Susan and me to come. And they said, okay, you can come, but the nurse surgery budget is gonna be zero. And the uh, amount of nurse surgical equipment that we will purchase for you is zero. We will supply gowns and gloves and gauze and a prep solution. Well, it is a Christian hospital, so you gotta do something, right? So we lived on donated equipment. A little bit of it was new, bought by a grant from the Medtronic Foundation and the stores company gave uh, me a nice endoscope and a monitor. And then the Nico Myriad is a, is a kind of a tumor dissector. That's all the new equipment we had. Everything else was used. You see it says microscope one. Well, that contraption that you see there was donated. That was the first one donated. And it was used here in the US about, what do you think, Paul, 30 years ago, 35? Um, and there was a, a donated operating table that went up and down, a Midas Rex drill, high-speed drill to get in the head, selector, tumor dissector, all the micro-instruments. A CT scanner was donated, uh, a first-generation scanner, and it worked for four months, and then it broke, and it never worked again. So all the time we were in Kajabi, we had ultrasound there, but if we needed a CT or an MRI, they had to go down to Nairobi, uh, and pay for it out of pocket. And someone did donate an EEG machine, a nice one, but nobody knew how to use it or interpret it, so, yeah. So this was the third donated operating microscope, and it's, a, it's quite, a, quite adequate. What do you think the hallmark of used equipment is? You got it, exactly. And if it broke, where do you think the local repair place would be? <laughs> yeah, back here, if, yeah. So the daily supplies, the IO band drapes, the cottonoids, the, the things that we use on virtually every case, those were all brought by visiting neurosurgeons. And we had visiting people come about every two months, so it maintained the supply. Whether or not the equipment will remain available and functioning in Kajabi uh, is doubtful. I, I may have made a mistake there because I wanted to teach them how to use equipment that would be used in an average neurosurgical operating room in the United States. It might have been better to have taught them with the rudimentary traditional tools like a brace and bit that they can always get in practice. Because many of them are going to, would be going out to government hospitals 
and they're not going to have an operating microscope, a high-speed drill or any of that stuff. They'll have a bracing bit just like carpenters do to get in the head, and it works. The bits get dull, but that's what most of them have, and that may have been a mistake. few thoughts about clinical care. It was, <clears throat> I had done pediatric neurosurgery for 30 years before going over there, and that experience was extremely helpful. I, I began it just before my training, just before CT scans came out in 76, and so had lived through the iterations of CT scans and then MRIs, but had done so many patients with those scans that there were many conditions that I could see the child and I would know what was going to be underneath there. Uh, not so much tumors, but certainly in spine cases. So that was very helpful. It would be a mistake for anyone to finish a fellowship and go straight over there. This would be a good example of that. I mean, this, I had never seen anything like this before, but in the States, even after doing this for a long time, I would tell residents, after all these years of experience, I see a child with a condition once a month that I've never seen before. How do you think that changed in Kenya? <laughs> oh my gosh. Once a week, maybe twice a week. And so this child came in, but I knew from experience here that the, the primary factor there, the focus is on that big lesion that's caudal. It does not transilluminate. It feels like fat. Probably is what it was, a lipomeningocele. And I hadn't seen all of these tags above it. I knew the surgical principle in treating these patients is to expose spinal cord above it, cephalad to the lesion, and then work your way down into it. But where's the top of this thing? You know, does it go all the way up to the top? So there we did send the child down to Nairobi and found out the, the height of it and it went beautifully. So another aspect that was so different, you know here if patients have one headache they're in the emergency room. Well they came late and so their conditions were advanced. Uh, to those of you who do global missions elsewhere like Haiti, I bet you see the same thing that they come late. Um, they often, once they decided to get medical care, they would go to a government hospital who had, without a neurosurgeon, and, the, and they would be admitted there for two, three weeks because the government was paying them for the, the patient bed day, although they got no care. And then after a while, they would get sent down to us. That was one reason for delay. A more important reason for delay was that they could not afford to come. I got this email from a missionary up in North Kenya. Who, uh, it's a ch it was a child with a lipomeningocele. She said, the mother is trying to get her ID and travel permit. The father is going to the cattle camp on Sunday to sell his cow. I hope by the end of next week, the papers are ready and the cow is cashed. That was not unusual. And it raises another problem. If we treated a child and they got the bill, they might be faced with the dilemma 
of selling the family's cow or sheep or goat in order to pay the bill. And we tried very hard to never allow that to happen, but I know it did happen a couple of times. A third factor about their care was that they would go to the traditional healers first. Now these are not um, what we would call witch doctors. If you, if you drive through Nairobi, you can see signs on the, uh, on the telephone posts that say, if you have impotence, headaches, you know, anything, you, so that's, the, that's what we would call a witch doctor. The traditional healers, they used herbs and a different technique. This child went to a traditional healer because he had headaches. What do you think those marks are caused by? Burns, right? And so the traditional healers would often burn the skin in the region where the symptom was. This child, when he finally got down to us, you see on the right scan, the yellow arrow is pointing to a very large cerebellar tumor. So he had obviously been symptomatic for months with that. This child, how long do you think he had been symptomatic to receive that many burns for back pain that had been slowly progressing over months and been associated with a slowly progressive uh, lower extremity weakness? Within the yellow circle, you see the deformity, and that's tuberculous spondylitis or spondylosis. So TB had destroyed his vertebra and extended back, compressed the cord, and he was paraplegic, and obviously nothing could be done neurosurgically for him. So those were hard, the delays in their coming. In terms of the clinical care itself on a day-to-day -day basis, when we got there, there were 15 to 20 patients uh, at a time and over the within two years it was up to 30 to 40 patients a day so rounds that would start at 6:30 would take two hours to, because we you know it feels awkward to say this but uh, I think we did them the way rounds should be done you know you listen to the patient you examine them you discuss treatment options and then come to a decision and it takes a while so we did uh, Humphrey my, Dr. Okechi and I did uh, uh, five operations a day. Each of us only operated four days a week. Uh, we would take one day off. And uh, 100 a month, 1,200 a year, and we did, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a little over 5,000 cases in the four years. And we found that that level was not sustainable from a personal standpoint for two pediatric neurosurgeons. It's just, uh, you can imagine that would be tiring. <laughs> Some of the reasons that morning rounds were difficult was the difficult treatment decisions about many patients. Um, for those of you who do not read CT scans routinely, that scan, uh, on the bottom row, you see the white ring of skull. You see all of the black inside, that's all spinal fluid. And then on the top row, you see some white, and that's brain. So this is a classic uh, scan of a child who has hydranencephaly. There's a brain stem and nothing above it. Uh, 
what do you do about that patient? If you don't do anything, the head size continues to grow and it'll get to about this big, so that baby's very difficult to take care of. They lie on one side a few hours at a time, they get an ulcer through the scalp, that gets infected, pus is coming out, so they, you know. So not treating is, has its <coughs> problems. In the United States in 32 years, I had seen less than 20 of those. In the four years in Kajabi, 53. We treated them with a variety of techniques, 11 with shunts, uh, choroid plexus coagulation in 18, choroid plexectomies in 15, and then 10 of them we did send home with uh, comfort care um, and to, to die. That manuscript is the last one, that'll be number 16. But those are hard decisions. Sometimes we would give the discussion to the parents and they would say, thank you for telling us the truth. Nobody else did. Because, you know, previous doctors, well, there's hope, we can do this, we can do that. But sometimes it's futile. And it, so we would give that information. Uh, we admitted two patients a day with hydrocephalus. In Kenya, the most frequent cause of that or association was spina bifida. In Uganda and most other sub-Saharan African nations, it's post-infectious. I mean, the babies get infections in the CSF. It's now known in the last year that the bacteria that does that infecting is Acinetobacter most of the time, which is in dung, they have animals uh, right around their, their, their little houses where they live. Animals shit on the ground, but they use the dung uh, to inside to patch cracks. And so there, there's Acinetobacter all over the place. And so the mother has a baby often at home in that environment. The Acinetobacter gets in through the umbilical cord, I, I guess, and then it gets up into the brain, eats the brain, and then the head starts getting bigger a month later and they come down for help. And this is what a scan frequently would look like. Now, again, for those of you who don't look at CTs all the time, um, all of those spaces, those cysts, those are isolated collections of CSF. So what in the world do you do with that? Can you put one shunt tubing in to drain it? No. So these were really hard. Uh, and there, there's no one way to do it. Uh, some of those were futile, and we sent them home. Some of them, it was possible to get one shunt catheter with multiple holes that would pass through uh, two, three, or four of these cysts and drain most of them. But uh, again, one of the challenges of being there was having to figure out how do you treat hard problems like this that you've never seen before and there's basically nothing in the literature to guide you. Now shunts were donated by the International Association for Hydrocephalus and Spina Bifida. This is the shunt that was donated. It's called a Chabra shunt, made in India. Uh, it costs $30. You get what you pay for. Um, 
they were free, but they had one factor that you don't see with shunts in the United States. That is, they were associated with perforations of various structures so that children would uh, come in with shunts coming out their mouth or out an abdominal incision or out the rectum. Now again, things you've never seen before. So a, ch a baby comes in who's had a shunt six months ago and the, the tube, the shunt tube is coming out the rectum and dripping spinal fluid. How do you, how do you treat that? Yeah. Um, you treat that by making an incision at the scalp uh, below the valve and you can actually pull everything out through the rectum and then the, the part in the head you can take out and put an external drain in until the CS spinal fluid is clear. Yeah. So we did do an ETV, that's an endoscopic third ventriculostomy in some of the patients if they were older than six months. That's all the hot, that's the hot new way to treat hydrocephalus uh, in the literature. Uh, it's fine in the United States and in developed countries, but in developing countries it's a, it's a different uh, problem. Now spina bifida, all right, so I mentioned that at least 250 a year. Now why do they have so much spina bifida? One reason is they have a lot of children. And the more children you have, the more, you know, the more risk of a baby with spina bifida. Secondly, the mothers never get folic acid at conception. A year's supply of folic acid for a mother is 44 cents. But how do they know to take it? It's just not known that they should take it. The third reason is, if you might, well, let me go to four. There's no abortions in Kenya. I mean, they're illegal, so that's just not done. Even illegal ones are not done as far as I know. I wanted to focus on number three, though, fumonisin in maize. Uh, maize is their corn, right? They grow their own corn. They take the corn to the local miller. The miller grinds it up, puts it in sacks, and they take it back and put it in uh, the barn. Well, they don't have barns, but, you know, someplace outside to store it. Kenya is a very humid climate, a lot of rain. And so mold gets on the maize. And the mold produces fumonisin, which is a chemical that inhibits DNA metabolism in the baby. That's the predominant cause of all of this spina bifida in sub-Saharan sub Africa. And so you might say, well, that's easy enough. You buy maize that has, uh, it has folic acid and multivitamins in it. And so go, the government passed a law two years ago saying all the maize that's, that's milled commercially has to be supplemented with folic acid and multivitamins. What proportion of poor Kenyan families can buy that? It has, that law hasn't made any difference in the frequency of spina bifida. So which of those factors could be easily changed? None of them. I don't see the frequency of either hydrocephalus or spina bifida decreasing substantially uh, in the next decade, uh, next generation, frankly. Uh, 
One of the things that I think that our time over there did contribute was that we figured out a different way to treat uh, spina bifida surgically. The way I was trained to do it and is commonly done is to go around the lesion uh, to take the edges of that spina bifida, fold them over, close them in the center, and then cover it with tissue. Um, we changed that so that this is, you see the spinal cord on the left that's going down into that placode that's on the surface, and we divided the junction between the spinal cord and the placode. The spinal cord on the right ascends, and then we closed over that. They do not lose function, and we did that on well more than 100 cases and, and published it. And so if, if I were doing a, that operation in the States today, that, that would be the technique I'd use. Uh, tumors, those were so hard. So this child, seven years old, comes with that obvious posterior fossa tumor. It looks like a malignant tumor, maybe a medulloblastoma, and so you'd like to send him and get an MRI of the spinal cord to see if it's uh, dropped down, metastasized. Well, you, you can't, they can't afford it. And you know that if you take out the medulloblastoma, they'll need, <clears throat> they'll need radiation and chemotherapy afterward. There's only one place, one city in, in Kenya that gives radiotherapy, and that's in Nairobi, and they can't afford it. Uh, Susan and I actually ended up paying for the radiation and chemotherapy on a couple of kids who had really good outcomes if they got treatment. But for some of them, you would see this scan and think about all of those problems down the road and, and say, I don't think we should do this. Because otherwise you put the child through the operation, they may have complications, and you've really not helped them. You've given them maybe a, two or three months of life. Um, this tumor is, would be a craniopharyngioma. It's a benign tumor in the United States. It would be taken out or subtotally taken out and followed by radiotherapy. But they always need hormones afterward. They can't afford those. The cystic ones, uh, we would put a catheter in and put in uh, bleomycin. It's a it's a cheap medicine that is available that uh, kills the wall and shrinks it down, but it doesn't do anything to the solid portion. So tumors were hard. Costs affected virtually every aspect of the clinical care. There was a national health insurance program that a few of them subscribed to. It cost a dollar a month. Um, if they didn't have that, the families would have to pay. And so it's a it's a communal society, so they would go to the parents, the aunts, the uncles, you know, and try to raise the money. And then this organization, BethanyKids.org, paid the bills for about 85% of the people. So uh, some of the lessons we learned, one of them was it's not sustainable for two neurosurgeons to continually take care of that number of patients and it wasn't sustainable for Bethany kids to do it financially. We had to make guidelines to help make it sustainable, limiting the number of patients, not admitting them if their care would be futile, trying to use antibiotics if the culture indicated they were appropriate, and then we 
we learned not to admit badly malnourished patients until they achieved a certain weight. Because if you admit a badly malnourished child with hydrocephalus and you put in a shunt, he or she comes back in three weeks. You know, the skin's eroded, the shunt's obviously infected, you see the yellow stripe, which has accomplished nothing. So hard as it is, we would send them home until they would reach a target weight. And if they did, then they would come back and we would usually treat them. So is it sustainable in Kenya? Uh, we had planned, Susan and I had planned to be there six years. After four years, I got chronic fatigue syndrome and it did not improve after six months. So I couldn't do five cases a day, so we, we came back. Leaving Dr. Okechi, wondering could he last until January of 19 when the Okechi, when the uh, Dan and Naomi come back. He left two months ago, left Kujabi Hospital, leaving it with no uh, neurosurgery except Dr. Bransford, that general surgeon, does a few cases with uh, uh, for hydrocephalus and spina bifida. We left with a question, will there be financial support for the Ochings until they finish the residency? And would visitors continue to come and bring supplies when we were no longer there? No, you're right, no, they, that's fallen off. So let me close with the last three minutes uh, reflections about pediatric neurosurgery in sub-Saharan Africa. So not just Kenya, but across the swath of the country. In that area, there's 184 new cases of hydrocephalus every year. Can you imagine 184,000 cases? And the solutions to those numbers are never going to come from increased manpower. Although there are a couple of people that said, well, what we need to do is to train high school graduates how to put in shunts or how to close spina bifida because anybody can put in a shunt. It's a big head. You put in the shunt, you know, drain it to the abdomen. That's, that's, yeah. that's being advocated. Um, the Kenyan Neurosurgical Society is not a strong advocate of that position. <laughs> there are Less than 20 fellowship-trained pediatric neurosurgeons in Africa for these reasons. One, there's no faculty to train them. Secondly, it takes another year of training. Third, there's no funds for that year. Fourth, it pays less than adult neurosurgery. And Kenyan neurosurgeons are just like neurosurgeons everywhere. Go where the money is. And lastly, most neurosurgeons, like other <clears throat> doctors, don't particularly like to take care of disabled patients. And so many of our patients are disabled by cerebral palsy or spina bifida or whatever. So the treatment of children with hydrocephalus and spina bifida raises social and ethical questions, particularly this one. Is it appropriate to try to develop pediatric neurosurgery throughout sub-Saharan Africa? After all, their medical budgets are meager. In Kenya, it's about $30 per person per year. That's their national budget. And they're needed for malaria and TB and, and uh, HIV. You know, and those things are often curable and lead to good lives. Pediatric neurosurgery relies on expensive and high-tech equipment. 
Many of our patients will die over there within five years. Many of the patients are disabled and are not valued in society. Their societies would choose, they prefer not to pay for that care. They want to use it on the, those other things. And so is it appropriate to try to do, teach this in sub-Saharan Africa? If academic pediatric neurosurgeons can be recruited to the few academic medical centers in sub-Saharan Africa, I think it would be reasonable to teach this to residents especially the treatment of children with, with disorders that have better outcomes. I mean, benign brain tumors or tethered spinal cords or anterior encephalocele's. It probably is reasonable to teach that, but in terms of hydrocephalus and spina bifida, I question it. Because unless it's sustainable, you put in the shunt, the child's gonna die of a malfunction if there's no one there to follow up, and that's the problem with the short-term volunteers. You know, you come, we come for two weeks or three weeks, do the operations to go home, but the person left on the ground doesn't know how to take care of the complications. Those with spina bifida die of renal failure with it, unless they're followed. And the recurrent benign tumors don't get diagnosed. And so I think Ibrahim and, and Mark Bernstein from Toronto are correct it may be ethically dubious and indeed a disservice to patients to facilitate the provision of neurosurgery without augmenting the capacity to care for patients following it. Children with these disorders need sustained, often multidisciplinary care. So I'll leave you with that question.